Section 12 of The Age of Elizabeth by Mandel Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 3, Chapter 3. Results of Alva's Measures on France, England, and Scotland, 1567-70. to Alva's measures in the Netherlands were felt as a menace to Protestantism throughout Europe generally. If Philip succeeded, he would first help to put down the Huguenots in France, and then would turn his attention to England. In France the Huguenots were at once stirred to alarm by their danger. They saw that the Queen Mother leant towards the Catholic party, and that the Cardinal of Lorraine again took his place at the Council. Troops were being raised by the government, ostensibly to protect the frontier, but the Huguenots suspected that they might be used against themselves. Determined to forestall the danger, they swiftly and secretly armed, and made an attempt to surprise the court at Monceau near Meaux, their plan being to compel the removal of the cardinal and the dismissal of the Swiss troops. The surprise failed, and the court escaped to Paris. The old constable Montmorency led the royal army against the rebels, and after a fierce battle in which he was killed, defeated them at Saint-Denis, November 10th, 1567. A German army came to their aid, and the king was compelled to make peace and reissue the Edict of Toleration in its full extent, March 1568. But this pacification was not to last long. Oliver urged upon the young king of France that to make concessions in matters concerning religion was beyond the royal power. He was granting what belonged to God, not to himself. Alva's example encouraged other Catholic powers. Moreover, he offered the French king aid against the rebels. The late rising of the Huguenots had filled the common people with terror at their power, and there was a strong feeling against them. The edict of pacification was revoked on the demand of the Pope, only six months after it had been granted. Both parties armed, and the struggle which in 1568 had been carried on in the Netherlands was in 1569 to be carried on in France. The Prince of Orange and Count Louis of Nassau made common cause with the Huguenots. The German Protestants sent them suckers, and Elizabeth sent them money. But they were not fortunate in battle. In May they were defeated at Jarnac, and their leader Condé was slain. When in October they again ventured to meet the royal forces under the Duke of Anjou, the king's brother, they were disastrously defeated at Montcontour. Still, Coligny did not despair. He retreated in good order toward Rochelle, the district round which had become exclusively Protestant. It was vain to attempt to subdue this country. It had refused to recognize the legality of the act which withdrew the Edict of Tolerance, and now declared itself to be under the government of the young Prince of Navarre. The little town of Saint-Jean-d'Angely offered a stubborn resistance to the royal troops, though the king himself was in the camp. The men of Rochelle even fitted out a small fleet, with which they made raids on the neighboring coast, seized booty, and sold it for the benefit of the prince whom they had adopted. Coligny again raised an army and threatened to march against Paris. 
The Huguenots were too strong to be put down at once by force, and had been well aided by England and the Netherlands. If the war were to last, it could only be by a close alliance of the Catholic party with Spain. But here the old national jealousy stood in the way. Oliva had not given such cordial help as was expected. His success in the Netherlands was threatening to France. To subdue the Huguenots by Philip's assistance would be to sacrifice the national independence and lay open a new field to the boundless ambition of Spain. The court resolved on peace and withdrew again to renew the Edict of Pacification. But as the Huguenots demanded some guarantee for their security, four towns were put into their hands for two years, amongst them Rochelle. The Peace of Saint-Germain, August 1570, again restored quiet in France, but it showed that if need were, the Huguenots were determined to maintain their own safety by arms. But the presence of Alva in the Netherlands affected England almost as closely as it did France. It was just at the time of Alva's expedition that Mary of Scotland had exhausted the patience of her subjects. The deposition and captivity of Mary deprived the Catholic party in England of its head. Mary at that time had so entirely disgraced herself in the eyes of Europe that a rising in her name was not to be thought of. Still Elizabeth was afraid of Alva and was unwilling to seem to be in league with the Scottish nobles who had deposed their sovereign. She felt the danger of admitting their right to do so. Though keenly alive to the advantages she had gained from recent events in Scotland, she could not bring herself to sanction them. Perhaps she thought that Mary had so far discredited herself as to be henceforth harmless. Perhaps she thought that her restoration through English influence would silence her. At all events, she urged her release upon the Scottish lords till she was met by the threat that her further importunity might cost Mary her life. The nobles were resolved that Mary should not return to power, but her party gathered strength from all the successes. Before she had been in prison a year, she managed to escape to Hamilton, and soon found herself at the head of an army of her adherents. Marito, taken by surprise, armed also, and cut off Mary's advance to the strong castle of Dumbarton Rock, where she felt she would be secure. The two armies met at Longside near Glasgow, May 13, 1568. The battle is interesting as showing the strange results produced by the old method of warfare. In front of both armies were stationed the heavy armed men. When they charged, the spears of both opposing lines stuck in the joints of each other's armor. The front lines were consequently fastened together, and the battle became a mere tussle in which the hinder ranks could take no part except by throwing stones and sticks over the impending mass of mail. At last the battle was decided by a charge of Murray's cavalry. Mary's troops fled, and she herself galloped from the field and hurried across the Solway Frith to Workington. Thence she went to Carlisle and begged for Elizabeth's protection. This was a step extremely perplexing to Elizabeth and her advisers. What was to be done? 
to restore Mary by force would be to alienate the Scots and establish in Scotland a hostile in place of a friendly government. To allow Mary to go to France would be to put a most dangerous instrument in the hands of the Catholic party on the continent. To keep her in England was equally difficult, for Elizabeth had no grounds for treating her as a prisoner, and if she were at large, she would be a center for Catholic plots. Her presence in the northern counties was dangerous, for there the Catholics were strongest. Before Mary's presence and the story of her misfortunes, the remembrance of her crimes began to fade away, and the old chivalrous spirit revived. It was thought wise to remove her from Carlisle to Bolton Castle in Yorkshire. At first Elizabeth tried to arrange a compromise between Mary and the regent Murray, but this was impossible. Mary demanded that Elizabeth should either restore her or give her free passage to France. She asked for an interview. Elizabeth refused the interview till Mary had cleared herself of the charges brought against her, urging that she could not proceed to restore her and so punish the rebellious lords till she knew the extent of their guilt. Mary accordingly agreed to a conference which was held at York toward the end of the year. The Duke of Norfolk, the chief Catholic peer, was the principal commissioner appointed by Elizabeth. Murray and Mary both sent their representatives, but the conference led to no decided result, except that the evidence against Mary for the murder of Darnley, including the casket letters, was laid before the chief English peers. They reported to the Queen that they had seen such foul matters as to justify her in refusing to give Mary an interview. On the main question, nothing was done. Mary still remained at Bolton, and Murray returned to Scotland with a loan of £5,000 from Elizabeth for the maintenance of peace between England and Scotland. Elizabeth was still doubtful what course to pursue. The suppression of the Huguenots in France and the entire subjugation of the Netherlands might arm all Europe against her. In the face of this danger, Cecil and the Protestants urged the Queen to put herself at the head of Protestantism in Europe, to make war openly against Alva, and send back Mary to Scotland. The Catholic and moderate party wished for peace with Spain and the recognition of Mary's claim to the succession in England. Elizabeth adopted a middle course. She sent money to the Huguenots in France, and seriously crippled Alva by seizing some ships laden with money for the pay of his soldiers, which had been driven by bad weather into Southampton and Plymouth, December 1568. Alva was furious and seized all English ships and property in the Netherlands. Elizabeth retaliated on the Spaniards in England. She pleaded that the money belonged to Genoese bankers, not to Alva. It had come into her hands and she had borrowed it instead of him. Philip, desirous of settling matters in the Netherlands before engaging with England, allowed the affront to pass by. Similarly, Elizabeth hoped that the documents laid before her commissioners would destroy in their minds any doubts they might feel about Mary's detention. But in this, she was mistaken. The Duke of Norfolk had formed the scheme of marrying Mary, and many who, from political reasons, were opposed to Cecil, 
and were in favor of a conciliatory policy toward Mary and Spain, promised him their assistance. Elizabeth, however, discovered the plan too soon. Norfolk was committed for a short time to the Tower, and his confederates, amongst whom was Leicester, were for a while disgraced. Mary was indeed a dangerous captive. Her partisans had waited to see if this powerful political coalition would succeed, but when they saw that it had failed, and that Cecil's watchfulness was not to be eluded, they had recourse to arms. The earls of Northumberland and Westmoreland headed a premature rising in the north. They demanded the restoration of the old religion and the dismissal of the queen's upstart advisers. They advanced to Durham, celebrated the mass once more in the cathedral, and tore the English Bible in pieces before the people. But their triumph was brief. The Catholic gentry were not yet prepared to turn rebels, and the aid expected from the Duke of Alva never came. The Earl of Sussex kept them occupied in the north till he was joined by reinforcements from the southern counties. When at length he was strong enough to proceed against them, the rebel army dispersed. Westmoreland fled to the Netherlands, where he ended his days miserably in the receipt of a small pension from Philip. Northumberland took refuge in Scotland, where he was taken prisoner by Murray and at last given up to the English government and executed at York. The rebellion was easily put down and severely punished. The queen had been thoroughly frightened, and her terror showed itself in revenge. Sussex complained that he was left in the north but to direct hanging matters. In every little village, the insurgents were sought out and executed. As yet, Elizabeth had been merciful, but as the great conflict of her reign deepened around her, mercy gave way before desperate endeavors. Still, the end of the year 1569 showed Elizabeth to be strong in her hold upon her people. The long-threatened Catholic rebellion had failed to shake her position. Alva had not yet felt himself strong enough to help her rebels. Philip, in spite of an outrageous affront, was not prepared for war. There was nothing to fear from France, for the French dread of Spain was tending to bring England and France nearer together, and a French marriage was even proposed to Elizabeth. End of section 12